Britain's Conversation. This is LBC with Eddie Mayer. It's Friday, it's a quarter to five. It's Simon Marks's American Week. Eddie, after spending a couple of weeks in the UK recently, it struck me that there is no radio programme that I know of here doing what you do there every afternoon. Americans wanting to hear the day's COVID-19 numbers in the US have to seek them out for themselves. And those who bothered to do so this week will know that the country lost 16,343 lives to the virus in the last seven days alone. 16,343. That is five times the death toll of 9-11. And it's currently happening on a weekly basis here. But you wouldn't really know that unless you dug the information out. Now, I know it doesn't look like it, but I am over 65. I wish I <laughs> way over. And that's why I'm getting my booster shot today. On Monday, in his only public appearance of the week, President Biden made only oblique references to America's spiraling pandemic death toll, as he became one of the first Americans to receive a booster shot of the Pfizer-BioNTech jab. The vast majority of Americans are doing the right thing. Over 77% of adults have gotten at least one shot. About 23% haven't gotten any shots. And that uh, that distinct minority is causing an awful lot of us, uh, uh, an awful lot of damage for the rest of the country. Please do the right thing. Please get the shots. Of course, all the presidential pleading in the world hasn't changed many minds so far. And as the president rolled up his sleeve and was jabbed with the needle, one reporter asked him how long before this is all over. Americans need to be vaccinated first to go back to normal. One thing for sure. That concession that if a quarter of the country remains unvaccinated, then America is going to have major ongoing problems, undercuts the claims of some White House officials that the country is close to the COVID-19 finishing line, learning to live with the virus, bouncing back. In fact, as the president indicated there, in many ways, the US is at the mercy now of the unvaccinated. As of today, only 55.6% of the country is fully jabbed. So good luck with the boosters when you can't even get the initial vaccines into people's arms. The president was due to travel to Chicago on Wednesday to promote vaccination. But in the event, the trip was scrubbed. The way the president sees it is that uh, this is an ongoing discussion, an ongoing negotiation. And right now, we're clearly in the thick of it. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki confirming that Joe Biden's diary was being hastily cleared so that he could focus his attention instead on a massive political problem threatening the very fabric of his presidency. Well, I think that what will likely happen is that the bipartisan infrastructure bill will not succeed. Uh, And that's what I think is the right thing. And I support the progressives in the House for doing that. Senator Bernie Sanders, the socialist gadfly from Vermont, appearing on CNN on Wednesday to fire a massive salvo against his own party's president. This was supposed to be the make-or-break week for President Biden's domestic agenda. Two massive pieces of public spending, a $1.2 trillion infrastructure proposal and a separate, much larger public spending bill, both requiring passage by Congress so the president can sign 
sign them into law. Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, insisted yesterday morning that everything was on track. We're on a path to win the vote. I don't want to even consider any options other than that. That's just the way it is, and that's, that's our culture. You don't understand that culture, you don't understand that culture. But that's our culture. We go in it to win it. But even as those words fell from her lips, her own deputy briefed reporters and told them the Democrats did not have the votes to get the infrastructure deal passed. And without dwelling on the congressional minutiae, and trust me, neither of us wants me to do that, it all boils down to this. President Biden needs every single Democrat vote to get these two measures passed, and he doesn't have them. He's stuck between a rock and a hard place, trying to find common ground between left-wing Democrats like Bernie Sanders. They favour soaking the rich and pouring public money into efforts to alleviate poverty. And right-wingers like Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who think the amount of money the president wants to spend is too large by a factor of three. He was accused this week of being a traitor by left-wing Democrat protesters and was quick to shrug it off. I've never been a liberal in any way, shape or the form. There's no one who's ever thought I was. I don't fault any of them who believe that they're much more progressive and much more liberal. God bless them. And all they need to do is we have to elect more, I guess, for them to get theirs, elect more liberals. One iconic image was captured by the cameras during a congressional baseball game on Wednesday night. The Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, paying no attention whatsoever to the sporting action, but focused instead on her cell phone and the tongue lashing she was giving someone unfortunate enough to be on the receiving end of her call. By last night, she abandoned plans to go ahead with the promised votes as Democrats from the right, the left, the middle and the White House huddled in her office, trying but not yet succeeding to forge a compromise. Back at the White House, Press Secretary Jen Psaki was being asked a salient question. Has the president at all lost control of his party? Well, this is how democracy works. I know it feels foreign because there wasn't much that happened over the last couple of years, but how it works is the American people elect their elected officials. The president of the United States puts forward a bold and ambitious proposal, and then everybody negotiates about it. They have different points of view. That's how democracy should work. We're in the midst of it right now. We're not trying to paint over how messy it looks from the outside. We know that, but that's the end stage of this process, and uh, the American people should know that that's what the president's working on. The bravado notwithstanding, this is absolutely not where the White House wanted to be today. The president's domestic agenda dangling by a thread, his approval ratings cratering, Democrats increasingly worried that his administration has overreached and lost its way. The only good news, a vote last night that brought the country back from the abyss of another government shutdown, but that patchwork measure just kicks the can down the road until the middle of December. Reporters here are now dreading Christmas. The White House insisted this week no one is better qualified to navigate the congressional shoals than Joe Biden. We've heard lots more talk about his 50-year career in Washington. But we heard all that just a few weeks ago when we were told that he uniquely had the foreign policy experience needed to bring Afghanistan to a successful conclusion. Yet this week, Congress has been trying to understand why the U.S. military withdrawal went so badly wrong. It is clear, it is obvious, the war in Afghanistan did not end on the terms we wanted. With the Taliban now in power, 
in Kabul. General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, making it clear in his opening statement to the Senate Armed Services Committee on Monday that he wasn't willing entirely to take the fall for the Afghan withdrawal. Flanked by Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin and General Frank McKenzie, who heads US Central Command, the three of them all looked distinctly uncomfortable as the Biden administration was held to account for the Afghan disaster. General Milley attempted to thread the needle. There was a plan for a rapid collapse. That's why those 6,000 troops could deploy as rapidly as they did. That's why all those aircraft showed up. From an operational and tactical standpoint, that was a success. Strategically, the war is lost. The enemy's in Kabul. So that you have a strategic failure while you simultaneously have an operational and, strategic and operational and tactical success. But Republicans scented blood in the water when General McKenzie disclosed that he and others, including former Afghan Commander General Austin Miller, had disagreed with the president's decision to withdraw troops entirely and had conveyed that viewpoint to the commander-in-chief. I recommended that we maintain 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. I also have a view that the withdrawal of those forces would lead inevitably to the collapse of the Afghan military forces and eventually the Afghan government. This committee is unsure as to whether or not General Miller's uh, recommendation ever got to the president. Sir, I was present when that discussion uh, occurred. Mm -hmm. And I'm confident that the president heard all the recommendations and listened to him very thoughtfully. That exchange with Republican Senator James Inhofe led to another spearheaded by Republican Senator Tom Cotton with the president's truthfulness on the line. Uh, president Biden last month in an interview with George Stephanopoulos said that no military leader advised him to leave a small troop presence in Afghanistan. Is that true? There was a very long pause before the defense secretary answered. Uh, Senator Cotton, I, uh, I believe that, uh, well, first of all, I, I know the president to be an honest and forthright man. Uh, and Just secondly... A, it's a simple question, Secretary Austin. He said no senior military leader advised him to leave a small troop presence behind. Is that true or not? Did these officer and General Miller's recommendations get to the president personally? Their input was... Uh, was received by the president and considered by the president. The White House insists the president was truthful when he said no one warned him of the dangers of a full-scale withdrawal and claimed he enjoyed the full backing of his generals to bring the troops out. But those assertions are looking pretty ragged at the end of this American week. Not, however, as frayed as the possible outlook for American democracy. Last Friday afternoon, the Washington Post published a thundering editorial by Robert Kagan, a highly regarded commentator who leans to the right but never supported President Trump. A fixture in Washington for decades, Kagan warned that American democracy might have just three years left. The US, he said, is hurtling towards its gravest constitutional crisis. He foresees years of mass violence, a breakdown in federal authority and the division of the country into warring Democrat and Republican enclaves. He argues Donald Trump will be the Republican presidential candidate in 2024 and if he loses the election will have garnered the support of sufficient Republican officials to block the victory of his Democrat 
Democratic Party opponent. And Kagan isn't the only one making that kind of dramatic prediction. We're not talking about a worst-case scenario. We're talking about a situation where democracy is not something that can be taken for granted as a background to all the other news. Timothy Snyder, a professor of history at Yale University, literally wrote the book called On Tyranny. You have a political party which is basically saying if we get hold of the House and the Senate in 2022, we plan not to certify a Democrat if he wins in 24. And we do all that to aim for an outcome in 2024 in which the guy who loses is nevertheless the winner. That is, that's not a workplace scenario. That is what's happening right before our eyes. He spoke on CNN, and he may be spot on. Take a listen to the conspiracy theories about the 2020 election still being promulgated only this week by Sidney Powell, a member of Donald Trump's legal team last year. She now claims the U.S. military stole the presidency from him. For at least 20 years now, Somebody other than the voters of the United States of America has been determining certain elections in what is nothing other than a coup. Here in the United States. Here in the United States. And Donald Trump himself continued this week with his falsehoods about the election, even after an audit of the vote in Arizona, much heralded by his conspiracy theory-believing supporters, showed that he lost the state by an even larger margin. Now, I must confess, I've been in a bit of a quandary this week because the president's former press secretary, Stephanie Grisham, has written a book... But given her failure ever to tell the truth while she was serving Donald and Melania Trump, I can't see a lot of point in dwelling on what it says. But then again, there's the bit about the music man. She claims that on particularly bad days in the White House, when President Trump was raging like King Lear, there was a member of the White House staff known as the Music Man. He would be summoned by aides seeking to bring the president down from the ceiling and play Donald Trump some of his favourite show tunes to calm him down. Memory from Cats, apparently a solid favourite. Now, I have no idea if this is true, but it's Friday. And wouldn't it be lovely to think that of all his storage contributions to society, Lord Andrew Lloyd Webber's finest act, Might Eddie, have been unwittingly to head off nuclear war. Simon Marks's American Week, back next Friday at a quarter to five. Now, the Steve Allen soundbite of the night. All you could hear was the howler monkeys from London Zoo. <laughs> like that.